This is Duke University. My name is Greg Dees. I'm the faculty director of the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship, we call it CASE, here at the Fuqua School of Business. And on behalf of CASE and one of our sister centers, COLE, the Center for our, on Leadership and Ethics, um, I'd like to welcome you tonight to this event. Um, I'd particularly like to extend a welcome to those of you who may not have been over here to Fuqua before for events. If any of you are in the crowd, we hope this is just the first time of many. Uh, we have, I believe, near the door some information about CASE and uh, quite possibly events that we have scheduled. Matt assures me we have information on future events. Please pick that up. You are welcome to come back. Um, we would like to have you here. Well, I have the honor tonight of introducing our featured speaker, Tom Tierney. Um, if you're here, you probably know a little bit about Tom, uh, at least what went out in the announcement, but um, let me uh, tell you a little bit more. Uh, Tom uh, spent 20 years uh, at Bain & Company. For those of you who, who may not be familiar, Bain is one of the leading management consulting firms in the business world. Uh, along with McKinsey and a few others, it's, it is absolutely uh, top-notch. And in his 20 years there, uh, Tom spent eight years, his last eight years at Bain, as the managing director, as the managing partner, the CEO of, of, of Bain & Company. During that time, he got interested in nonprofit organizations. Bain's uh, main business is for-profit, but like many other consulting firms, engage in pro bono activities, and Tom did that, and I think it lit a little bit of a fire for him. I heard him say earlier today uh, that he found these projects were fun, rewarding, and even more challenging, perhaps, than the business consulting projects that he'd worked on, and that intrigued him. That drew him in. And towards the end of his tenure as managing director, he started exploring a new idea, the idea was for a consulting firm that would be nonprofit and serve nonprofits. It's called the Bridge Band Group. And I'm going to ask him when he comes up here to tell you a little more about the Bridge Band Group, what it is, how it works, its relationship with Bain. But I learned of this because at the time I was teaching at a well known Northeastern business school. And one of my close colleagues, Jeff Braddock, Jeff had been a doctoral student there and was now a faculty colleague of mine. Um, pulled me aside one day to say he was having conversations with uh, the managing director of Bain about starting up a nonprofit consulting firm. I was skeptical. I didn't think it was going to work. I was, uh, thought it was unlikely that uh, Tom would leave his position at Bain to do this, that uh, Jeff would leave his position at the well-known Northeastern Business School to do this. Um, they both did. It was really highly risky. Um, I had to admire them for it, uh, and uh, the job they've done since has been remarkable. Um, Tom, in addition to his uh, full-time professional career as a consultant, uh, serves on a number of boards, including the eBay board and, uh, and many uh, nonprofit boards and advisory uh, groups. Uh, he is one of the few people I know who have a series of Harvard Business School cases written about him personally, not just companies that he's been involved with. Um, 
So he's a, a remarkable individual, and I've gotten to know Tom over the last uh, couple years uh, uh, even, even much better as I've worked with him uh, on Bridgespan, and it has been a true delight. I think you're going to find he's one of the most uh, thoughtful people working in this arena. There is a I think a fear among many nonprofit executives that these high-powered business consultants are going to come in thinking they know everything. And they're simply going to tell nonprofit leaders how to run their organizations like businesses. I think what you're going to find with Tom is that he comes in fully aware of the differences between the sectors, the complexities of operating in, in, in the social sector and doing it well. It's been reflected in everything that I've seen him do, uh, and I'm just delighted we could have him here today. So I'd like to welcome Tom Tierney. Thank you. Thank you. All right, let me, uh, I want to get a sense for, for who you are now that you know something about me, which was exaggerated and not entirely fact-based. Um, how many of you have worked in business? So you received a paycheck from a, a corporation or something like that. Okay, great, that's fine. How many of you have worked in the nonprofit sector? Ooh, that's very cool. How many of you government? Any government? People work in government? Okay. How many of you uh, today volunteer at, in some way, shape, or form? All right, this is a great group. Uh, many of you are what we might refer to as bridgers. You are bridging sectors, uh, bridging occupations. Uh, probably some of you are thinking about uh, your life as a series of bridges or a portfolio of different things you want to try to accomplish. There are many ways that this conversation this evening uh, could go. And maybe let me, let me just make sure we're all on the same page to add a little bit to the, to the comments that Greg said about Bridgespan. And then what I want to do is dive into the issue of leadership in the nonprofit sector. Uh, we'll have lots of time for Q&A. And just from talking to a few of you uh, beforehand, some of you are interested in careers and bridging and changing careers. And some are interested in running nonprofits and how you do that. And there are lots of different kinds of questions. So we'll, we'll try to get to those. But I'm going to drill down tonight on the, on the issue of leadership. Let me set the stage by describing something about Bridgespan. So, so Bain & Company is this big consulting company. And it's a partnership. Bain now has, I don't know, 1,000, 3,200 some people in 30 countries around the world. Uh, in 1984, it created Bain Capital, now one of the largest uh, and certainly highest return private equity uh, firms in the world. And I found myself through a series of weird events uh, running the place. Um, I was not the most qualified person. Um, I was a little, little bit like the only person that didn't step back when everybody, uh, so here I was, moving from California to Boston. And in the context of that, uh, of that experience, began asking questions. And Einstein has this phrase that questions are more important than answers. And the question was, which is, by the way, put a marker on that one. It is really true. If you don't ask yourself the right question, there is no prayer you have of getting to the right answer. But the question I was asking is, is there something a company could do that would provide more sustained and uh, significant social impact than these ad hoc pro bono projects Bain, uh, Bain does? Uh, Bain does those, McKinsey does those. It's great. Those are nice things to do. No one makes partner in Bain giving away work. It's not how it happens. Okay? Um, that is not Bain's business. Bain's business is serving corporations private and public to dramatically improve their earnings. 
their business is not <coughs> serving social sector organizations to improve their impact. We do that, but that's not our business. So the question was, could it be more of our business? And we explored all these different business models. I did engage Jeff Braddock at, at uh, HBS as a, as a kind of co-sponsor and, and a brainstorming partner. Ultimately, that led to the BridgeSpan group. So today, BridgeSpan is a 501c3, this is important, it's a charity. We raised, Excuse me, we, we lost your microphone. We're having a hard time here. here. I can button. hear myself fine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I've got a short me. <laughs> I'm going to move forward. Uh, so, bridge span. Bridge span? Oh, that did it. Holy cow. You'll wish it was off very soon. <laughs> <laughs> when I was giving a talk many years ago at a nonprofit, when I was when I was running Bain, and I had my uh, uh, we have two sons, and I had the youngest one in the front row, and uh, afterwards I said, "How was it?" He said, "It would have been really great, Dad, if it was short." <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, everybody. Um, BridgeSpan is a 501c3. It is a nonprofit. It took us uh, four or five years to raise the money to get it capitalized. It took me a year and a half to convince Jeff Braddock to leave HBS to, to lead it, and he is the managing partner of BridgeSpan. It took 18 months to get it through the IRS to approve this thing that the IRS had never apparently seen, which is creating a nonprofit as a spin-out of a for-profit. And they didn't like the concept because if any benefits accrued back to Bain and Company, then it wasn't a nonprofit, was it? This sort of some lost leader thing. It has a different brand, Bridgespan. It has different employees. It has a different board of directors, mostly external. It has different space. But we are a charity in the truest and most pragmatic sense of the word. We are designed to serve other charities. Now, as we came along on that, and I'm going to dive into the, to my prepared remarks in just a minute, but as we evolved, we came to understand that nonprofit organizations need three things, and we were providing the one that was the least important. Bridge span, the nomenclature, the name, came from the idea of bridging the business world and the nonprofit world. Not that creative, but it worked. There was another bridge, however, that emerged very quickly, which was bridging the sources of capital with the uses of capital. So about 20% of our clients are foundations working on their strategy, a Gates, a Rockefeller, a Dell, a Hewlett, and about 80% of our clients, the vast majority, are charities, on-the-ground charities, serving youth, K-12 education, the environment, causes like that. So we have these two bridges, and we're at this intersection then of this fascinating, this fascinating uh, mix of business stuff and nonprofit stuff and people making grants and people receiving grants. Now, that's created some insights, if you want to call them insights. One of them is that there are three ingredients necessary. To go back to where I was, strategy, capital, and talent. Those are the three ingredients necessary to actually deliver impact if you're a nonprofit organization. By the way, kind of the same for businesses, right? This issue of strategy turns out to be the least important. Why? It's the least important because if you have really, really good people and they've got more or less enough capital, they'll often figure things out. They zigzag their way. We all zigzag our way. So 
Bridgespan Group gave birth to something else called Bridgestar. And if any of you are ever curious about either of these, and I will touch on these in the remarks, but I want to set the stage. Bridgestar is part of Bridgespan, so it's kind of a business unit of a nonprofit, therefore it's a nonprofit, it's the same board of directors. Its mission is to improve the flow of management talent into the nonprofit sector. So I'm speaking to you tonight as a person who's a little bit confused. I'm a business guy, I'm a nonprofit guy. I work full-time in the nonprofit sector. We're a strategy consulting firm, but we're kind of this human resource consulting placement hybrid thing. And we deal a lot with capital flows in the nonprofit sector. Now, why is all this important? So I guess uh, you might think of me as a, as a, a bridger, uh, a hyper-bridger. <laughs> and the reason I think it's as important is as follows. Um, as near as I can tell, the absolute most important issue confronting the nonprofit sector today and in the foreseeable future relates to leadership. Uh, now, why? Why do I say that? Um, I actually say it because unless the leadership issue, and we're going to talk about what we'll refer to as the leadership deficit, is addressed. Maybe I can, is this on? Okay, we'll go both ways here. Unless this leadership deficit is addressed, American nonprofit organizations, and I think outside of America this is true as well, are going to face an absolute debilitating leadership crisis. And talk tonight about the extent of that crisis, about how it's manifesting itself today, about what's causing it, and maybe a little bit about what some of you in the room might think about doing as a consequence of the crisis. We okay so far? Bridge Span, Bridge Star, Nonprofit Bain, Leadership? Got it. Okay, good. Um, yeah, that's the part where you just nod your head. You don't say anything. You just say, okay, good. Um, now, let me tell you a story. Mickey, this is not her real name, but real person. Executive director of a neighborhood organization, urban organization. Uh, she'd served in all kinds of capacities in that organization for 18 years. She's been ED for maybe a decade. The nonprofit she led had a phenomenal track record, and she was a star. She is a star. People recognized her as being a, a leader, a manager, a fundraiser, a motivator, just committed to serving the various constituents in this, in this neighborhood. She did everything, and she did it really, really good. And I got to know her at one of these conferences that I attended, and I was just impressed with her. I knew right away, was, this person is hot. She is really good at what she does, and I wanted to learn. It's more important, I think, to be a student than a teacher. <laughs> it, it, nothing personal. Um, <laughs> teachers that learn that can be both students and teachers are great. Some teachers don't always do that the best. But you know, I feel like, for me, learning is more important than teaching. And I knew I could learn from, I knew I could learn from Mickey. And you could just tell she was great. Well, we went out after this thing. And I said, I just wanted to quiz her. I wanted to ask questions. So let's go have a beer. So we had a beer. And after that beer, she started telling me, maybe it was the second beer, she started saying, you know, I'm kind of, I'm pretty burned out. And I'm, and I'm upset. I said, you know, what's, what's going on? She said, I don't have the money to run my organization. I can't, it's hard to get unrestricted funding uh, for, uh, for overhead. Uh, she said the last year she'd try to hire a chief financial officer. She really needed a CFO. And... She went to the board, and the board said, you know, boy, CFO, that's expensive. We've got this part-time bookkeeper. 
Can we stick with the part-time bookkeeper? She's saying, you know, we're, it's big. You want better financial reporting. All this stuff's going on. I, you know, I, I need to pay the person twenty, thirty thousand dollars more. I need to find a better person. Board was was really frustrated with that, uh, but she anyhow went out and tried to find a qualified candidate. She looked and she looked and she looked and she couldn't find anybody. And this had been now way over a year. In the meantime, what's happening? Her financial systems are melting down a little bit. The bookkeeper's way overwhelmed because he's out of his, uh, out of his element. Um, what they needed was a full-time person. That was not what they were getting. She was getting burned out, and she was feeling entirely alone, which is why she was willing to you know, vent with me. A few months later, I got an email from her, and she quit. She announced her departure. She was 51, and she actually wasn't sure what she would do. She, she told me, she said, well, maybe I'll, I'll do something easy. I'll be a consultant. <laughs> but she was sure she didn't want to go run an organization. Now, 51 years old, she was in her prime. She was in her prime. Uh, there had been, of course, no succession plan. It's a typical nonprofit, no succession plan, obviously no successor. The board was caught flat-footed, even though they had all the signals they should have seen. They went found an interim executive director. That person lasted about 18 months, eight months, excuse me, then another interim executive director. And the last thing I heard was their revenue had declined tremendously and they were on their third uh, executive director, still not able to find a permanent person. And by the way, still with the bookkeeper. That's Mickey. Now let me tell you about Frank. Also not his real name, but definitely a real person. Mid-30s, financial executive, banker, Phenomenal resume. Right schools, right jobs, promotions, blop de blop de blop. Professionally, very, very successful. Had built a great resume. And now was interested in building a great life. Saying, you know, gosh, there's got to be something else. So Frank, Frank says, I got, I've got to figure out how to move from, and this is a phrase that I've picked out from, uh, from other folks, from success to significance. I'm pretty successful. I want to be more significant in my life. And by the way, I'm not sure it's an either or, but it's an interesting concept. He wanted to move into nonprofit leadership. He's got financial skills, thinking those are pretty transferable. He sat on the board of the Boys and Girls Club. He'd done a little volunteering, but he really didn't know very much about the nonprofit sector. It was kind of this, this mush ball to him. Lots of organizations different than what he was familiar with. He spent a year. He talked to people. He read what he could read. And what he discovered was this is a maze. There are all these organizations. I can't, I can't tell them apart. They seem to me to be pretty mediocre, a lot of them. Some might be good, but I can't, I'm not sure I can tell the difference. And he was not exactly embraced by the nonprofit sector. You know, they see a suit like that, and gosh, there's a, does he have a checkbook? Because <laughs> we need to raise some money. But to actually work here, a business person, this is, we're different. We have a different culture. We operate from the heart as much as the brain. You know, we're, not, we're not so sure. He was discouraged. He spent a year, year and a half looking. He gave up, decided to stay in banking, sit on the Boys and Girls Club board, maybe add another board. Now, what's wrong with this picture? If there's one single thing that I've learned in those six years, five and a half years since we launched BridgeSpan. It's, the nonprofit sector is, is filled with outstanding people like Mickey, incredible leaders like Mickey, 
who do amazing things with limited resources, who are trying to build society and to serve society. And you know what else we've learned is there are thousands, and actually the number might be tens of thousands of Franks out there who might be right out of school or might be in mid-career or might be in their 50s thinking about what's next in the next phase of their life who are saying, you know, I'd, I'd like to do something else. I'm willing to make the sacrifice. I want to do that, but how? How do I do it? How do I get started? I don't have a map for this jungle. Now, this dynamic of having the Mickeys burning out, departing, the organizations faltering, and the Franks going back to banking, this is expensive for our society. This exerts a high, a high cost, doesn't it? And it's a high cost for the individuals involved as well. If we want organizations, nonprofit organizations, to deliver social impact, really results, real results, then they don't just need the strategy stuff, and they don't just need adequate funding, they need talent, they need leadership, they need bench depth. This, I think, actually more than I think, I think this issue, this is the number one issue for our country. Now, why? Well, we've got lots of leaders, and we've got lots of people that are highly committed to nonprofits in those leadership positions, but they're starting to leave their jobs. And now I'm gonna pull the camera back a little bit and talk about the macro trends and why there are more Mickeys and more Franks today than there used to be and why there are gonna be more of them unless we act on it going forward. Quite a few studies that some of you may have read over the last 24 to 36 months that are predicting turnover of nonprofit leaders. And they range from 35% to 70% of nonprofit leaders are gonna leave their jobs in the next three to five years. There was just another study by Compass Point, I think, what, a couple of months ago. The data, the data are telling, and you know, studies that predict future behavior, if somebody asked you, you know, what you were gonna do in your job in the future, those aren't always the most accurate. So you have to take that, that sort of thing with a grain of salt. Um, but that said, these numbers translate into a turnover rate of about 10 to 15%. That's not crazy for executives. That's common, that kind of a rate is common in business. Um, but it's not just the rate that's going on here. There's something else going on. And the something else relates to the underlying supply and demand of leadership, of leadership talent. There was a Business Week article not so long ago that talked about the brain drain in the federal government. That's interesting. How does that apply? The article stated a fact, which you've probably read, that of the roughly half of the 1.6 million civilians employed by the federal government will be eligible to retire by 2008. Half. 70% of all the supervisory level people. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to retire in 2008. That means they're eligible to retire in 2008. The business sector has been uh, struggling with this demographic trend for, for quite some years. There was a book written uh, actually by uh, McKinsey folks uh, called The War for Talent years ago, which basically laid bare this issue of how going forward, Management pool smaller than it's been in the past. And in fact, over the next 10 to 20 years, there will be a 15% decline in the number of, of people in the kind of 35 to 44-year-old age group, which is, again, another statistic that we're aware of. We're getting older. <laughs> we know that. But that demographic dimension of America's workforce is a little bit hard for nonprofits to accommodate. What do I mean by that? Businesses can respond to these labor force dynamics, right? They up the budgets for recruiting. They up the budgets for training. 
They create golden handcuffs. They do all kinds of things, investing time and money to attract and retain the next generation of leaders. They can do that because the shareholders of businesses don't care that much about the input. They care about the output. They expect you're going to have great people because great people are going to generate great results, which means great earnings. That's what they want. They want great earnings. They don't care if you have a CFO or a bookkeeper or whatever you have. Earnings matter. Earnings growth matters. CEOs are expected of businesses. Business CEOs are expected that to, to say people are our most important asset and we're investing in that asset. Business people understand that's, that's important competitively and it's important financially. They understand that great organizations have to, are required to deliver great results. Well, developing a, if you're a business person, a number of you have been in business, you know, developing a future supply of business leaders is actually kind of easy, in quotes, uh, when compared to the leadership supply challenges confronting the nonprofit sector. Now, why? Um, well, to start with, nonprofits think about investing in capacity building as a cost to be minimized. More important than the nonprofits themselves, the contributors to nonprofits think about those costs as costs to be minimized, not assets to, to, be, to be developed. Um, the measuring overhead ratios. You see these rankings of nonprofits based on overhead. Now, frankly, that is stupid. It's just utterly, totally stupid. Is the uh, you know, what is it, the US News and World Report that ranks universities, do they rank them based on the cost structure of the university? I don't think so. Of course not. They rank them on output variables. Airlines, give the, uh, mention the anecdote, you know, I fly around a lot. You know, I, I actually like high maintenance costs, not, <laughs> not low maintenance costs. You know, those, those are inputs, not outputs. Well, the nonprofit sector is tangled up on this, and the contributors to the nonprofit sector is tangled up on this. The media is tangled up on this. There are even internet-based nonprofits that are ranking nonprofits based on cost structure. It's, it's dangerous. But it's more, than, it's more than how nonprofits have to confront their cost structure that, in, that, that uh, is, is a barrier. It's also the very flow of talent. The nonprofit sector is fragmented. The organizations are often small. They're not connected. It's not like moving a marketing manager from P&G to a marketing manager at Clorox. But even more than that is the growth of the nonprofit sector. It's fascinating. You know, Peter Drucker wrote 20 years ago the nonprofit sector essentially said the nonprofit sector is going to gain share. And it has been gaining share ever since. In 2004, charitable giving in the U.S. totaled $241 billion. Probably some of us know that, know that number. Up 7.2% a year. 7.2% a year. That's a lot faster than our GDP over the period from, uh, from uh, 1980 to 2004. The number of nonprofit organizations has tripled in the last two decades, tripled, growing at about 6% a year. In fact, on average, 98 new net, so netting new organizations versus ones that kind of don't stay around, 98 new net organizations, new nonprofits every day. People say, gosh, that's proliferation. It ain't proliferation, folks. It's growth. <laughs> there are more big organizations. There are more medium-sized organizations. There are more small organizations. It's growing. You know, we have um, kind of a love fest with social entrepreneurship. 
you see this manifesting itself many different, many, many different ways. You see it manifesting itself in places like this, the fact that all of you are, are here tonight. It's also a function of more money that's coming in. In the uh, 1999 to 2001, 20,000 new foundations, now clipping along two or 3,000 new foundations a year. There's a fellow at Boston College that's done this research, Paul Shevich is his name, about the wealth transfer. More money's flowing into foundations. More money's flowing to the nonprofit sector. Trillions of dollars, he believes, will flow into the nonprofit sector over the next 30 to 40 years. It's growing. So how does this work then? The supply of nonprofit leaders is shrinking, largely driven by demographics, but not only demographics, because people are a little, mobility's increasing, so that CFO of the United Way might be able to be a CFO at a company now. So people are leaving the sector, leaving management jobs, becoming consultants, what have you retiring. At the same time, the supply is declining, the demand is increasing. Now, years ago I took an economics course, and I vaguely remember that stuff happens when there's a dramatic imbalance between supply and demand. If there were a labor market, an effective labor market for leadership talent in the nonprofit sector, stuff would happen. Compensation would go up, probably. The people would move from other, other areas to take on these nonprofit leadership jobs, but there is no labor market for the nonprofit sector. It's, there's no labor market for the nonprofit sector. What the nonprofit sector is, is tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of organizations and millions of people that are entirely disconnected. Entirely disconnected. Now, this creates a giant contrast to the way business works because business. Business has a labor market. So let me, in the spirit of bridging, let me kind of benchmark business and then contrast that with the way the nonprofit sector, if you will, labor market doesn't work. So how do businesses build leadership capacity? Well, the, we know this. First of all, interesting fact, by and large, the best research suggests that businesses grow two-thirds of their leaders themselves. They grow them themselves. They hire them out of places like this, grow them. And in fact, they have a lot of places to hire. They can hire from business schools. The pool in 1970s, there were 26,000 business school candidates, excuse me, 26,000 business school graduates, uh, 220,000. There are a lot of MBAs around. It's a fungible degree, creates degrees of freedom in the marketplace and so forth. Businesses have taken advantage for that. That's a giant collect collection base, uh, basin for future leaders for businesses. And they, they love it. What else can business? Business does industry recruiting, of course. And the entire search industry, which now is some $8 billion, is nothing other than a mobility machine for businesses to help talent move from one place to another. It creates a senior, a high-end high labor market. Monster.com exists today to enable the labor market for business people and technical people. Um, it is not hard relatively speaking, for a business to develop these future flows of talent. Why? Because there's all this infrastructure. Whether it's internet, whether it's search businesses, whether it's MBA programs, there's all this infrastructure. So keep that picture in mind, and now let's think about the nonprofit sector, which by the way, depending on how I keep scores, six, seven, eight percent of our gross domestic product. Let's think about the nonprofit sector's infrastructure. Well, first, business, two-thirds grow your own, one-third recruit outside. Recruiting outside is is more expensive and riskier because you don't know what you're getting. It's much better to grow your own. Jack Welch, bingo. People have figured that out. It's better to grow your own if you want to build extraordinary teams. One third for business is outside. For nonprofits, two thirds outside. 
Whoa. So they have to compete in this war for talent two-thirds of the time. Wow. Oh, but they must have a lot of infrastructure, right, to, su to support them. Well, here's the good news. The number of graduate programs in nonprofit management has skyrocketed. 1990, there was about 17 of these, over 210 today. Public policy schools, business schools, all are recognizing the importance of that. So the good news is there's more, there are more people. Very few graduates, however, of these schools go directly from graduate programs into nonprofits. At Harvard Business School, for example, the largest club is the Social Enterprise Club with, I don't know, 350 members. If you track how many people went directly into nonprofits out of business school for the last decade that that thing's been running, it's 15, it's 12. What's going on? Well, a lot of things are going on. I got debt, <laughs> big debt. <laughs> and guess what? Got to pay your big debt. And a number of programs have increased, but debt's increased faster. So the fact is, you can't always afford to do it. The other fact is nonprofits don't recruit at places like this in any significance. Why? They don't know how to, you know, they, how do you, MBAs? What would I do when I got there? And I don't know how to, I mean, they, maybe they need one every three years or five years. It's not like a Bain company that recruits hundreds. It's real different. So it's hard for nonprofits to access that, that pool of talent. Um, what about the search industry? Oh, and by the way, I should say on that pool of talent, it's not that the fundamental demand isn't there. We've done surveys uh, of, of folks a couple years out, enormous interest. I talked to the, uh, the president of uh, Georgetown, largest recruiter at Georgetown universities now Teach for America, the undergraduate level. Well, that's interesting. Teach for America has, is a great example of an organization that has figured out how to access these talent pools. City Year's done it. I think Bridgespan's doing it pretty well. So some organizations that have a certain amount of scale and a certain amount of, of competency in this arena know how to do it. But most nonprofits, the vast 99%, don't know how. What about the search industry? Search industry is not geared to nonprofits. The search industry is geared to profits. They're geared to profits. So Hydric and Struggles, Corn Ferry, all the rest of these, they might have one person, two people, five people, eight people working on, the, on, on nonprofit searches. And what do they do? They go for the high-end searches. That's where the money is. You get paid as a percentage of the, of the compensation. So would you rather uh, work for the uh, a Red Cross and find the new CEO at 600 grand a year, or would you rather work for um, Mickey and find the new uh, CFO at 80 grand a year? That's an IQ test, right? Uh, there's pretty much no question about that. So the search industry capacity, it, it, they do make money on nonprofit searches, but it's not wildly different than Bain doing pro bono work or deep, deep, deep discounted work for, for, for nonprofits. There are some... Um, executive search firms focused just on the nonprofit sector, but not many. One, for example, in Boston, Isaacson Miller, a phenomenal firm. Uh, but guess what? They need cash too. And so 70% of their business is in higher ed and in healthcare. Why? $200,000 a year jobs, $300,000 a year jobs. Real important jobs. There are a lot of freelance people in these various, uh, in the fields, freelance search people. Complicated job. They need to earn a living. They're going to migrate up to the extent they can. And they're, of course, limited by who they know, by their little Rolodexes. And it's not exactly the best living. This is not something, it's not as if the, you know, the, the lifestyle of a freelance executive search person is so great that all of you want to graduate here and do that job. You don't. So the executive search capacity in the nonprofit sector is quite constrained. Internet, early days. 
uh, probably the biggest out there today uh, helping serve the nonprofits is idealist.org. Uh, Bridgestar is coming up uh, along, the same, along the same track, but a different, uh, a different camera angle. I'll get to that maybe. But it's early, early days. Idealist has 2,000 jobs posted. Those include entry-level positions and uh, staff positions and what have you. So most nonprofits are too small to grow their own. They have to shop outside in the competitive marketplace. Um, they have uh, cost constraints. There's a scarcity of pools of talent that they can access. And they don't have low-cost search capacity or very effective internet capacity to help them solve their problems. So what do they do? You know what they do? Which, by the way, has huge implications for any of you that, that want to find either a job in the nonprofit sector or another job. They have one, one thing they can fall back on. It's hire a friend. They can hire a friend. They don't post the jobs because there's no real place to post it where they're going to get the high-quality talent they need. Too sophisticated. The jobs are too complicated. They don't hire search people. They're too expensive and not customized to what they need. So they, they hire a friend. They network. Do you know anybody? 75, 78% of a, according to a survey we did of executive directors found their jobs through this method. They happened to know somebody who was looking for somebody. They were one or two steps removed. Now, this is tough way <laughs> to serve a nonprofit sector that's seven or eight percent of our GDP and is growing as fast as it's growing at a time when the supply of talent is decreasing. The hiring a friend thing is complicated. And you see symptoms of this stress all over the place. Executive directors burning out, jobs not being filled, all kinds of stuff. So now let me contrast this business infrastructure, which is our benchmark, against what's going on in the nonprofit sector in the spirit of kind of bridging and, and thinking about that for a second. Business, think about, um, think about a kind of goofy metaphor. The business sector has evolved to the point of having this sophisticated public utility system that facilitates the flow of talent. And the public utility system is, is the MBA programs and executive search programs and internet and growing your own and developing your own and training and recruiting programs. Really sophisticated public utility system. So business people, I'm running Bain. I need more consultants. Turn that tap. And that machinery works. It just works. Go from recruiting 200 to 250 people like that. It works. Turn the tap, talent flows. Obviously, it's expensive, time intensive, but we know how to do it. The utility's built. What about the nonprofit world? The nonprofit world, there's no tap. If there were a tap and you turned it on, nothing would come out. What the nonprofit world works, the way that sector works, is you grab a bucket and you walk three miles to the river. And then you wade out in the mud, and you fill the bucket up with water, and you walk three miles back, and you pour it in the sink, one at a time. There's no infrastructure to support the Mickeys of the world in trying to find the talent they need to build the organizations that are required to deliver results society demands from them. Wow. We. Um, we just finished some research, which we're going to publish in a few weeks, to try to calculate, if you will, calibrate the magnitude of this problem. No infrastructure, supply of leaders going down, demand for leaders high and escalating, growing. 
lot's been written about teacher shortages and nursing shortages. Uh, the numbers you read are somewhere around a million teachers or a million nurses. Of course, for teachers, there's big infrastructure, ed schools. And the teaching problem is actually a turnover problem more than it's an input problem. Uh, nurses, nursing credentialing programs, programs, school academic programs for that, lots of infrastructure. No infrastructure to produce nonprofit leaders. It's random, as we've been talking about. No infrastructure to move them around once, they, once they're out there. It looks to us like, over the next decade, the nonprofit sector, excluding higher ed, so all those professors and all that stuff, excluding healthcare and all those professionals, which are big chunks of the sector, and excluding all the grassroots organizations under 250,000 in revenue, of which is about, I don't know, 60, 70% of just the numbers of organizations. So just thinking about the rest of that universe, so human services, environment, arts, culture, et cetera, et cetera, that cluster of nonprofit organizations in America only needs somewhere between 600,000 and 1.2 million new leaders in the next decade. And just, you know, 600,000 to 1.2 million new leaders in the next decade. And if you make really conservative assumptions, that is that people aren't going to retire and that other kinds of things are going to be, you know, eclipse of the sun, a bunch of stuff happens, then that number might get down to three or 400,000. It is far more likely to be way over a million than it is down to be three or 400,000. And frankly, it doesn't matter. These are new C-level leaders. These are the CEOs and their direct reports, top five, six, seven jobs, that's all. Chief Operating Officer, Chief Financial Officer, Human Resource, IT, Marketing Communications, that's all. And these are not people that are currently in those jobs. So this doesn't count if a COO goes from you know, one job to another job of being a COO. That's not, that doesn't count. These are new people that are not currently in the talent pool of leadership in the sector. That is a mind boggling number. And we didn't believe it when we first did the research. It's now been vetted by all kinds of people. And it builds on all the studies that are out there. I don't know if you call it a crisis. I don't know what it is. But 600,000 or 500,000, and the following decade is going to be almost as bad, as near as you can see. That is a giant need for leaders. Paul Shevers says this multi-trillion dollar wealth transfer is kind of coming like a big green-backed tidal wave on the beach. And at the same time, the people are running these organizations are leaving, and not enough people are joining the beach. And you've got this wealth transfer is going to collide with this leadership deficit, it looks like. Big time. Really big time. Now, if impact is a function of strategy, capital, and talent, and strategy is the least important, important, but not as important, and there's going to be enough money, and there is an emerging, existing today, leadership deficit. You know, is it really is, uh, come on, is it really bad? I mean, so what, somebody said, what if we're 100,000 leaders short? Or what if we put B players instead of A players? Or C players instead of B players? I mean, come on, does it matter? I don't know if any of you have ever read uh, work by Jim Collins, Good to Great, or if you haven't, he's just written a phenomenal uh, monograph self-published, I think it's nine bucks on Amazon, called Good Grade for the Social Sectors. It took him longer, by the way, a little, uh, little known fact, took him longer to write that than it took him to write Good Grade. Took him two and a half years. Because, and he didn't anticipate that, because the social sectors turned out to be so radically different than he anticipated when he got into it. He has a little saying that I think captures the, the importance of this issue, which is, 
it's not that the people are your most important asset, as CEOs always trumpet. It's that the right people are your most important asset. And he says, nothing is more important than getting the right people on the bus in the right seats, which is kind of a cute little way of, of saying it. Um, I am on the board of eBay. Meg Whitman would say, right people, right job, right time, period. Nothing's more important. Right people, right job, right time. Peter Drucker, you go back to his writings, the cornerstone, it's all about leadership. It's all about having the right person in the right job at the right time. It's all about who's on the bus. Hard to find a, a successful business person from a great organization that doesn't understand that and actually that doesn't act that way, that isn't spending half of his or her time on leadership development, on recruiting, on training. Of course, of course. But you know what? The nonprofit sector doesn't work that way. So, Bridgespan, I'm going to wrap this up and we'll take questions, go anywhere you want to go. So, Bridgespan confronted this, this issue. Well, we confronted it about three or four years ago. We said, oh my God, <laughs> you know, it's strategy capital talent. There's plenty of capital that's flowing in. People complain about money because you never have enough. But that's not the, that's not the, the scarce resource. And strategy, yeah, we're, we're helping out there. Other people are too. Schools like this are helping out. But talent, so that's when we launched this new initiative called BridgeStar. And BridgeStar is in month 25. Uh, and any of the, have any of you done startups in business or nonprofits? Okay, so you guys know. There's no such thing as a linear startup. You zigzag. You zigzag. Right, I told a story today, you know, Google, uh, Google was insistent on not selling advertising when they started. Uh, that changed. They didn't anticipate that. Hewlett and Packard. Uh, were, were, you know, their ideas were very different than what eventually happened. Uh, eBay uh, never dreamed somebody would buy or sell an automobile online. I mean, what a goofy thing to do. And now it's billions and billions and billions of dollars of automobiles sold online through eBay. So you can't anticipate these things. So we're in month 25. We can't anticipate, but I can tell you what we're trying to do. Um, we're trying to create a low-cost uh, hybrid between search firms and job boards that helps enhance the flow of management talent into and through the nonprofit sector. So we got a team of people. We started pilot testing this uh, two years ago in Boston. Last year uh, went live. So that means started to monetize things. We covered about 15% of our revenue uh, last year. Uh, now we're moving into New York. And the idea is in the next uh, decade, uh, probably a lot sooner, we'll be in cities around the country. We'll have local presence and national scale. Um, for better or for worse, there's nobody else playing in this space. We are in the midst of this giant white space where nonprofits are coming to us saying, would you help us find this chief operating officer? Help us find this chief financial officer. We're backlogged. We can't even take all the work. And we're not trying to do the high-touch search thing that a search exec would do. We're trying to do a low-touch, high-value-added, unbundled. So you want resume screens? We'll do that. You want uh, reference checks? Will you do that? You want us help with job description? We'll do that. We'll unbundle the services, try to do all of it from the office and online. And serve what it is your needs are for these jobs that might pay 80,000 or 90,000 or 60,000, 120,000 a year. So that product is selling. What's interesting is the question now becomes how do we fill the jobs? How do we access the talent pools? How do we find the people? We don't need a million members. We don't need a million uh, resumes uh, uh, downloaded for, for a job. We need a few people. We need high quality high volume. And how we're going to do this, we're not exactly sure. 
the people are out there. They're pockets of talent. And this is what gives me so uh, much great optimism about, about, about solving this issue. That is the deficit issue. Because there are people two years out of business school or even in business school who say, you know what, this is my calling, this is what I want to do. I just need to find the right spot. And there are people in mid-career that are trying to change the, the Franks. And there are baby boomers who are saying, you know what, um, I'm 52 and it's time for something different and I'm not going to try to maximize money. I've got my house paid for, whatever. What I am going to do is try to serve society. And there are other in really interesting pools of talents. Mom, moms re-entering the workforce, which is hard to do, it turns out, are really hard to do. Lots of research on that. And, and yet, boy, a lot of them are very talented management people who left the workforce for a year or five years or whatever for kids and now want to get back. So there are these pools of talent. And the question, not just for Bridgestar, but for the sector overall is, how do we, how do we tap in? How do we tap into those effectively? So we are uh, beginning a journey. That is, we bridge star as part of bridge span. And you know, we're not exactly sure where it's going to go. I, I can say a couple of things to all of you and then, and then wrap up. Um, if you are interested in uh, careers in the nonprofit sector or mobility for yourself, you know, engaging, joining a place like Bridge Star, building your network is really important. If you're serving on the boards of nonprofits, being a champion for capacity building is really important. Advocating hiring that CFO instead of that bookkeeper. Getting the nonprofit to join BridgeStar, to use a freelance search person if they can find one that fits. To invest in the capacity to build that team is really, really important. Uh, some of you uh, may end up uh, being major donors someday and asking if I'm going to write checks. Am I writing checks for programs or am I writing checks to build capacity for people who will then deliver the programs? So there are lots of different ways we can all contribute to this. And, and I'm an optimist. I think this, this, will, this will sort itself out. It's interesting because if it doesn't, if it doesn't sort itself out, what happens? Well, a lot of things could happen. We could end up with a lot of C players in jobs that require A players, the wrong person in the wrong job at the wrong time. What's going to happen then? Impact is going to decline, isn't it, of those organizations. Donors might pull back because one of the big trends in the nonprofit sector, and this is going to continue, and it's partly driven off institutions like this in a very healthy way, is let's think about our intended impact theory of change. Let's think about how we measure results. Let's think about what we're really doing with the money we're given to change society. That theme is going to increase, and as that theme increases, the tolerance for mediocre management teams delivering mediocre results is bound to, is bound to uh, increase, or the tolerance is bound to decrease. Or we could have fewer nonprofits. Or we could have smaller nonprofits because they can't grow. They can't find the next division presidents, if you will, the equivalent of. Well, what happens then? Does government in America pick up the slack? No. That trend is, looks like pretty strongly for quite a few administrations going in the opposite direction. American government is asking non-governmental organizations to do more. Well, what if they can't do more? This is a significant issue. And it's a significant issue at a time when, as near as we can tell, more people than ever before are interested in serving, which is great news. So um, let me wrap up, say that I do think this deficit problem is going to be resolved. I think it's going to be resolved, however, in a zigzaggy kind of way. Uh, Bridge Star will contribute to that, as will you know, dozens and dozens of other organizations. So thank you. And now let's take questions on whatever topic you might find relevant to this. Thanks.
Question. Uh, you're kind of a zigzag kind of guy. And, well, I uh, guess thank you. Uh, the, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about, uh, and of course, being in the marketplace of eBay, uh, you have a unique perspective about how that organization and company has grown to develop your marketplace. Well, within your marketplace of, with, uh, with Bridgestar, of trying to create the marketplace between the, you know, the need with the nonprofit and the talent, how, how are you going to competitively place yourself when you've got Monster out there, which is so well known, so far ahead, coming out with all these great revenues, and you know they have a little button you can press that says nonprofit. How, how are you going to? How are you going to? Uh, the question is: Is uh, Bridgestar's competitive position? Uh, first, we're a nonprofit. Uh, the need here is gigantic. We are not interested in competing with anybody. And uh, and as far as we can tell, so far we aren't. So if you thought about um, Job boards versus search firms. Uh, a high-level search will take two or three or four hundred hours. A lot of hand-holding, meeting with search committees. We don't do that. We won't work more than about 100, 125 hours, all the way down to you know 30 minutes. So on the cost structure side, we are unbundling the service. And in that sense, we're creating a cost. Let me just explain. So we are able to charge. $2,000 to $20,000, depending on what package of unbundled services. Um, no search firm, Corn Ferry just raised their minimum to 80 grand. They don't want the, so search firms are not interested in that business, that touch business. Now, what about the tech business? We just did an assessment, and actually Heidi was, was instrumental in this, um, colleague at Bridgestar. We just did an assessment of, of where are the jobs? Because we know these jobs are out there, and we wanted to know are they being posted or not. The upshot of that is my estimate is about 3%, 4% of the jobs are being posted. If you're a nonprofit exec, if you've ever posted a job, and I'm not talking about a secretarial job or a tech job that are really easy to tell you know, on paper whether somebody's qualified or not. I'm talking about a management job. So a chief operating officer for a $3 million charity, you post that on Monster, you will get a couple thousand useless resumes, all of which you've got to respond to. Maybe there's a donor in there. And nonprofits, it ain't working. So they're not posting. They are not, it's a cost center. It does work for certain kinds of jobs. So if you want to think about that, the, the rough number, let's say 50,000 jobs of the kind we're talking about are out there. So I'm excluding the healthcare, the professors, and nurses, and all that. Not including teachers either, by the way. Um, I'm guessing, or we're guessing, maybe 5,000 of those could be served by local search people, mostly not firms. And maybe a few thousand can be served by job boards, if you get really, 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 really lucky. But the rest is not being served. And that's the white space. So Monster, the CEO founder of Monster, has been twice to our offices, wants to you know, talk about how we might collaborate. And th the problem with that is we actually don't need 4 million, nor do we want 4 million people. So one of the things we may end up doing, and we'll see how we're going to use, I mean, one of the questions for the next 36 months is how we can best apply technology. What we may end up having to do is be an intermediary between job boards and the client. So posting on our place, posting on other places, we let search people post on us. But, but then being the recruiting department, 
So it's kind of like, you know, Bridgespan this year, for example, received 1,700 resumes for 18 jobs from undergraduate and graduate schools, the top 10 schools of the country. Well, you know, holy cow. All of a sudden, the, the, the woman who's the receptionist who doubles as the recruiting administrator is sitting there with these, these boxes. <laughs> and so what do you do? You do a resume screen. We know how to do resume screens because you can't interview 1,700 people for 18 jobs. Turns out you can interview 5%, so we picked 5%. Did we make mistakes? Yeah, of course. Who could tell who the sixth percent was? But that kind of a value added for a nonprofit that doesn't have a recruiting coordinator, doesn't have, a, doesn't have an administrative person that knows how to do this and will ever do it again, because they don't hire a CFO very often. It's high value added. So the, the, the question we're wrestling with is how do we get the volume and then vet the volume in a cost-effective way for the, for the client. We don't want to compete with anybody. We've hand off work to uh, search firms. Um, if we thought we could hand off work to a job board, we'd hand off work to a job board. Uh, the only effective place out there today is Idealist. It's not Monster, because Monster's, Monster's a monster. Um, and the experience that, that, that nonprofits have with that for these kinds of jobs is pretty bad. Idealist is starting to get some scale. They have all kinds of jobs, not just management jobs. And, and, and we're trying to figure out how do we add value in a way that lets Idealist do what it's doing and lets us do what, what we want to do. Um, this is not a crowded market. The white space here, it looks to be uh, even bigger than the white space when we launched BridgeBand. In BridgeBand's white space, there was a marketplace of 3,000 consulting firms, a bunch for-profit, a bunch non-profit, average had one and a half people, very few had more than five. So you had this, again, highly fragmented uh, set of organizations that never reached critical mass. I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me if in, it wouldn't surprise me if this year, Bridgestar places more CFOs in non-profits than any other, than any other vehicle in the country, which is bizarre in the, the, the really the third year because we're focusing in on these functional jobs, which of course is another difference. Nobody's focusing in on the CFO, the human resource, that next generation of leadership, which seems to be the weak spot. So, so, so far there's no, and, and frankly, if, if Monster could do this, if there was a way we could say, here's the playbook, Monster, go do it, hey, we got there, we'll do something else. We got lots to do. But this doesn't, Monster's been at it for years and this problem isn't solved. This problem is not new. This problem has been emerging for the last five years. Some of those first studies were three or four years ago. The problem ain't going away. And if it's not resolved in the next decade, it's going to be a little bit too late. So it's a really good question. But it looks like we're on solid ground there. I mean, in some ways, you could say, gosh, I wish there could be a business. <laughs> but if it were a business, we wouldn't get all the collaboration from, you know, the CEO of Corn Ferry calls me and says, what can we do to help? He would not, if we were a for-profit entity, I probably wouldn't make that kind of a call. Uh, yeah. So it seems like that uh, <clears throat> desire to provide social service or you know, search for significance after success could also be filled through a government role. And yeah, people absolutely. like Corazon and, and Romney are good examples. So how do, you, how do you counsel someone who's sort of maybe leaning towards government, but you think a, a nonprofit would be a better or more impactful path? The question was government track. And let me use that since I know, uh, I know from the conversations in the, in the reception that people have questions about career tracks. So let me pull the camera back on that and let's just talk about career tracks in general. Um, there's no substitute for building on your strengths. So job one is what are my strengths? and how can I build on them? You know, we had this uh, group earlier today, you know, nobody says I'm gonna build on my weaknesses. That's kind of dumb. You know, I'm a bad tennis player, so I'm gonna go play a lot of tennis. I lose every time, gosh, it's great. 
right? People don't do that. And so, but, but to build on your real strengths, you have to know what they are, which means you need harsh feedback from folks that say, no, you're really not very good at this, you're good at that. So, so there's a, issue one is building on your strengths. Issue two is understanding what your, or variable two is understanding what are your passions, what do you really care about? Strengths and passions are, are evident in different combinations if you're thinking about government versus nonprofit. Obviously, right? So you have to kind of drill down a little bit on, okay, what really are my strengths? How do I feel about, if I'm running for elected office, all the stuff, all the baggage there? If, if I'm shooting for a, um, uh, an appointed position of some sort, uh, federal appointments, the average tenure I think is 23 months. Now you actually work 48 months during that 23 months because you don't get a day off. <laughs> a, and, uh, not exactly facetious comment. And so you say, gee, is that built to my strength? Do I, am I okay on that or am I not okay on that? It's hard to generalize government versus nonprofit because you have nonprofits that rely heavily on government funding. And they're almost quasi-government agencies, right? And you have nonprofits that, that rely exclusively on charitable funding. You have nonprofits that look like businesses. A hospital that's for-profit versus a hospital that's non-profit, it's kind of hard to tell the difference. Or you have, um, you know, the symphony that charges for its fees, uh, charges for admission, and it's creating revenue. So there are all these blends. I mean, it is, it is unfortunate that we have a sector defined by the IRS tax code, right? It's kind of weird. Um, if, you, if you pull the camera back and say, okay, I'm interested in my career in public service of some kind, as opposed to self-service, you get public service in certain kinds of companies that have strong social orientations. Well, think about somebody who's a hospital administrator, for example. I mean, that would be public service as far as in my book. <laughs> so, so, so it's not so much government versus nonprofit in general as who am I and what are my strengths and what, are my, what do I feel called, pulled to do? And, and then how does that work? Now, as people sort through that, it's very hard to know that a priori. Uh, there's a guy I referenced earlier today, uh, Bob Buford, who wrote a book called Halftime and then Stuck in Halftime and then Finishing Well, focused on his business guy that sold his business, and he lives in Dallas. He was focused on how to transition. He's the one that said success to significance. He coined that phrase. Well, interestingly enough, one of his insights, and I do think it's a relevant insight for people in the career question, is that people who were able to transition successfully from wherever to wherever parallel tracked. They sort of did some stuff over here. So we launched Bridgespan officially in the end of 1999. The business plan, the first draft was written in 1996. The idea was put down on, a, on a, literally a napkin, as you know, crazy as it sounds. It was a napkin uh, that was supporting a glass of, uh, a margarita glass, uh, to be honest, uh, with one of the other guys, Paul Carter, who helped found it uh, in 1990. So, you know, and me sitting on boards, me doing pro bono work, wasn't because I had some grand plan that that was going to take me somewhere. Was, I, boy, I liked it. <laughs> and I learned. Now, I also, I did some stuff in government, and I tried some other things, and I tried some other, there's an experimentation here to know. You know, you know, you know I play tennis. I'm crappy at tennis. Oop, that's data. Boy, I did this. I'm kind of good at that. There's a strength there. Do I like it or not like it? So giving yourself the time to experiment. You don't, you know, one of the, the problems that business schools sometimes have is, um, they focus us, and this happened in my case anyway, and it, and it, and it took me a while to, to, to shed the problem, was they focus us on, on resumes. It's, it's kind of like, 
you know, I'm not good here, I've got to get there, and when I'm there and I've got to get there, it's building a resume instead of building a life. And, you know, I remember when I went to business school, it's how many people are you managing? That was currency that, you know, I got a thousand people reporting to me. Yeah, really? Wow, what a miserable life you have. <laughs> Golly, they must line up outside your office. So the, the second career thing, which is relevant as you're trying to think about strengths and passions, is, is parallel tracking, experimenting, trying the shoes on. Because you get in organizations and they say, okay, I'm now, and Bain does this, and I don't like it, but Bain does it. Uh, boy, you're on track to partner. The tracks are there. My little choo-choo train just got put on those tracks. It's going wherever the tracks have already been laid. They were laid 30 years ago. Now, maybe that's exactly right. Maybe those are, boy, those are tracks I would have put them there myself. Maybe not. <laughs> maybe I wouldn't have put them there myself. So sooner or later, if you are bridging, you're going to end up laying your own track. And, and sometimes people have a hard time with that. We get calls, you know, we're not in the consulting business, we're not in the counseling business for individuals, but it turns out we do some of that, partly as favors for friends. And we get calls from business types, uh, uh, you know, one a couple weeks ago from an investment banker who's, you know, cashed out of wherever, Goldman, placement public, boom, I've got tons of money, and now I want to serve the world. Happy you, great. What do you want to do? I want to run, I want to run a big, important organization. Well, that's nice. Have you uh, been on the boards of nonprofits before? No. I wouldn't have time for that. Have you volunteered? No. Done any grassroots, work, grassroots stuff, community stuff? No. Um, what have you done? I've worked and made money. Well, that's nice. What makes you think you're qualified? Silence. He's not qualified. He's not even remotely qualified. Why would he be qualified? He's an investment banker. He's really qualified to write checks. Fabulously qualified to write big checks to deserving human service organizations. Go for it. But qualified to run something? No, not qualified. It's, he has to repot himself. He has a new set of skills, and maybe he will never be qualified. So this, it's not easy to switch sports, I guess. I'm not an athlete. It's not easy to switch uh, industries sometimes. It's not easy to quit, switch careers. The switching between a business organization and a nonprofit organization, because strategy is different, capital markets don't exist in nonprofits, it, it, it's hard. So I know that was a lot more than you wanted to know, but it's not a lot more than some of the others you asked about earlier. So it's thinking about your passions, thinking about your strengths, trying things on, and being realistically realistic about laying your own track. Yeah. You talked about funding as being flowing into the sector going forward, but if this funding is flowing as kind of business as usual and going into the same paths, it seems to me like you might continue to see the growth of nonprofits, but not necessarily change in the sector, because they're going to continue to be forced to invest in new projects or what is important to the donor rather than their capacity or their impact. And have you come across any innovative ideas that have addressed this issue through Bridgestone? Innovative ideas that address the flow of capital? Okay, uh, so the question is development of ideas around the flow of capital that, that may uh, migrate more capital toward unrestricted support, which is part of the issue we were talking about earlier, the overhead thing, and, and uh, maybe just in general, uh, more efficient capital. Um, it is something we've studied. Uh, Greg's worked on this. A lot of people worked on this. The, the reality is, as near as I can tell, that capital flows in the nonprofit sector. Well, 
You got government, that's different. It's a whole different gig, and that's about, I don't know, $300 billion. You've got uh, fees, that's a different thing. Generating revenue, I went to the opera, I paid my ticket. Then you've got charity. Charity, uh, the 240 billion I mentioned, 80%, 85, whatever, is individual, and it's personal. The rest of that is, is foundation and, uh, and corporate money. It's personal. When you give money away, it's the Yogi Berra thing, when you give it away, you don't have it anymore. It's yours to give away. You can do whatever you darn well please. And people give money for emotional reasons, not just logical reasons. You give money based on how you feel more than how you think. Otherwise, Harvard would not have the money it has because there's no rational argument that says it needs more money, but people keep giving it more money. <laughs> so what's going on there? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. It's not that hard to figure out, and it is one of the interesting trends that over the next 20 years could play out in different kinds of ways depending on people's point of view. Harvard, as a university, has, they say they have, as I recall, $60 million a year expenditure to, in development. That almost certainly doesn't fully capture the cost because they're not capturing the dean's time and the faculty time and all the time that's being spent raising money and nurturing relationships. But what they have, what this university has, what hospitals have, what some arts organizations have are grateful beneficiaries. Grateful beneficiaries. You know, I went to UC Davis. I hang on, hung on by my you know, kind of fingernails for a while there. I'm really grateful I got to graduate. I mean, really happy about that. And uh, so I write them a check once in a while. Do they need the money? I don't think so. They're part of the UC system, for Christ's sakes. But I still contribute. And capital flows to places with grateful, wealthy beneficiaries. It also flows to those organizations that have the wherewithal to develop those relationships with those people. So it's not surprising that the most highly paid development people uh, in the country are in universities. It's not surprising that universities have, uh, over the last few years, uh, dramatically improved their planned giving capacity. Well, you know, your average $3 million nonprofit serving urban youth does not have an expensive lawyer doing planned giving. I guarantee you. They do not have uh, wealthy beneficiaries who experienced their services and are willing to write a check for a million dollars. They don't have that. So one of the things that's happening on a big level is more and more capital particularly the large amounts of capital, are going into big established institutions that can afford to develop the relationships and create kind of stuff for people to buy. I mean, this week's news, which is just so funny or interesting, I guess, maybe not funny. So T. Boone Pickens uh, puts $200 million into a football stadium. Oklahoma? See, I'm not a sports guy, but I think it was Oklahoma. Oklahoma State. Now, this is not, that is not a stellar football team. But he, for whatever reason, likes it, and they now have $200 million. Whoa, some development person is still partying on this one. <laughs> so on one hand, there's a really interesting question about where capital flows. Does it flow to the bigger organizations that can hire the expensive development people and have the wealthy beneficiaries? It is. <laughs> um, does it flow during somebody's lifetime or after? This is also important on the capital front. This wealth transfer it doesn't say whether the wealth goes to charities or whether it goes into foundations. The statistics, at least the analysis that we did, uh, households in America with over 25 million of net worth, if you looked at their total charitable giving the last 10 years of, of their life, of course they don't know when they're gonna die, but let's say somebody dies at 80, from 70 to 80, if they were gonna give away $50 million, if that's what they actually ended up giving away, it's 10 million a year, 
and then 40 million is in your request. And of the 40 million, 35 is in a foundation in perpetuity that your kids are on the board of, or your lawyers or whoever. Uh, in other words, people could give a lot more during their life, but they tend to put it in foundations and kind of let it ride. 90-some percent of all foundations are set up in perpetuity. So there's a really interesting question. As this tidal wave of money comes in, does it get parked in foundations, or does it actually find its way through? Because once it's in a foundation, our HBR article Michael Porter wrote years ago, it's 5%. They pay out 5% because that's what the law says. And it was legislation in Congress, what, last year, year before, trying to make it 6%? Holy hell broke loose. Unbelievable. And, and the 5% includes your own expenses. So if you're paying your board members and you've got a big staff and you've got, in one case, Boston Globe article, it turned out a private jet, all of that gets charged against the 5%. So you can consume 5%, you don't actually give away 5%. It's a great deal. I mean, it's a really fine, I mean, it is fine. It encourages giving. It encourages moving money into foundations. It doesn't necessarily encourage moving money away. So this capital flow, are the big institutions gonna gain share? Maybe. Are there be more bigger foundations in perpetuity? Maybe. And then the last trend that I think is, is notable is there is a trend toward more unrestricted giving. Uh, Paul Brest at the Hewlett Foundation has been banging the drum on this. Other people are banging the drum on this. Foundations, I think the statistics are about 80% of foundation giving in the last few years has been programmatic. So they're saying, I want to give it to this program helping these kids, but I only want 8% or 10% to go to overhead. And of course, government money is heavily oriented toward minimizing overhead burden. Um, that trend might be changing. So it's very, we don't know what's gonna happen with the capital question. Uh, but it's not gonna be entirely rational, whatever happens, because it's gonna be made up of lots of individuals deciding to do what they wanna do with their money. I don't, does that get at it? Yes. Shoot. The emerging leaders not need uh, mentors, they need role models, and you've been a role model, and uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that, but I also want to tag on there. In 96, you started Bruce Spann, and 10 years from then you're here talking about this time, and then where you see yourself in 10 years. Okay, the business plan for Bridge Spann was wrote in written in 96. We launched in 99. The question was, where am I going to be 10 years from now? Um, I might be right here again. I don't know. I like it here. The, uh, you know, uh, life, you, you, can, you can plan for life, and then it happens. So the huge value is in thinking through what matters to you, your strengths, and that. And I think hard about that, uh, really hard, <laughs> and have for a long, long, long time, and keep notes on it. I'm very kind of left-brained on, on, on trying to improve. Um, I don't know where the journey's going to take. It's weak, your bridge span today is bigger than when in, in, in staff um, than when I joined Bain, okay? So I spent 20 years at Bain. Bain went from 80 people in those 20 years to say 2,000, today it has 3,000. Went from, I don't know, a few million in revenue to way, way over a billion in revenue. Started a private equity firm with now 20 billion. That's compounded about 40% returns for the last 16, no, 22 years. You, no one, when I joined Bain, you could not possibly have predicted what was going to happen to Bain. You couldn't have predicted, you know, Bill Bain wouldn't have predicted it. Bill Bain, he didn't like to travel. He wanted to have three offices. You know, I mean, in California for six years, he came there twice. And, you know, who knows? So what do I know for sure? I know for sure that the strategic position Bridgespan is in, that is the size and growth of the marketplace, the opportunity we have, 
our ability to attract and retain excellent folks, our ability to attract and work with and serve excellent clients uh, is orders of magnitude better than Baines was at this juncture of its development. Now, where does all that go? I don't really know. <laughs> uh, I suspect Bridgespan will be a lot bigger. I suspect Bridge Star will morph all kinds of times. Uh, there could be, you know, there could be more more nonprofit initiatives. I'll be surprised if there aren't that grow out of this over the next decade. My intent is to uh, is to do my part to serve this organization and society this way, you know. And we'll see what happens. Uh, so I'm pretty clear about my strengths and uh, and my weaknesses, and, and I think I know my passions. And we're and we're going to zigzag. It's a zigzag. <laughs> it is a zigzag. And hopefully you hit the guardrail and know that's oop, that's a guardrail back this way. You know, and recognize it for what it is. So I'm just zigzagging my way to someplace. Questions? Any more questions? Yes, please. Uh, Headland, um, going back to Bridge, Bridgespan, pardon me. Um, in terms of how receptive have nonprofits been to just overall consulting going in and giving advice, and what things have come up that have caused them to say, I don't think so, versus saying embracing. Great question. What the, the receptivity of nonprofits to bridge span? Um, mixed. Mixed. And interestingly enough, the f we've had to work at this. So the first issue was, are you arrogant business people who want to tell us everything you know? And we were highly sensitive to that. So we did the uh, very genuine, humble thing, you know, and we learned, and we're still learning. I mean, we, we still don't know most of what we think we need to know to be good at what we're doing. I and mean, that's just the truth. It is just the truth. But that was a barrier, and people didn't believe that till they experienced it. Uh, there were other uh, more tactical barriers. PowerPoint. You know, the business world, PowerPoint is how you talk. I don't think most people at Bain could, could buy a cup of coffee without PowerPoint. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of... Oh, wait, let me give you a slide on that. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. By the way, for those of you that are still in school, you got to learn to write. It's just a little thing. You just have to learn to write. Uh, communicating turns out to be important. Writing turns out to be really important. It's been important for a long time. They used to do it on tablets. We were now losing it. You don't go back to you know, any of the great works. You know, 100 years from now, when people are looking at the great works for this century, they aren't going to be in PowerPoint. <laughs> I hope. Uh, so there's an example. Our communication style. You know, we, we, had, we have uh, a couple of folks that go back, uh, go around and interview our clients anonymously after, after our work, and uh, we get very rigorous feedback. They interview usually five senior people at each client, and we haven't, we're not, too many clients do them all, but they do a good sample. Uh, PowerPoint. Kill the PowerPoint. They said, you know, these guys are doing great, but just kill the PowerPoint. So there's an example of where there was a cultural difference. Um, we were, we had to learn about a different kind of process. You know, people say nonprofits move slower. I think that's unfair and, and inappropriate. And the reason it is, is nonprofits have more stakeholders. So Jim Collins in the Good to Great Monograph thing, he calls it legislative power versus executive power. You know, businesses build consensus, but they do it by saying, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think, I'm the boss, here's what I think, thank you very much, we've got consensus. <laughs> It's not quite like that, you know, but it is like that. I mean, Jack Welch, those of you who read about him or know him, I mean, he's not a consensus guy. He's a decision guy. And you listen, you get input, but then you decide. And there's no ambiguity about executive power in corporations, by and large. Wow, in nonprofits? 
whoa, major donor has an idea. What do you want to do? Uh, chairman of the board, volunteer, what do you want to do? Um, you've got staff people who have made sacrifices to work there. They're not making the big bucks. So it's more of a, it's the number of stakeholders, volunteers, places like the American Red Cross. You know, they've got the staff, paid staff, and they've got a, a shadow organization of volunteers. Usually powerful. They have a volunteer board. Really, really powerful. How many CEOs do you think could deal with volunteers? If you don't do that, I'm going to fire you. You know, Donald Trump. You can't fire me. I don't work here. <laughs> I'm just a volunteer. Well, the number of stakeholders you have and your, your power over those stakeholders is real different. We sort of understood that, but what, what happened was we understood, began to understand how important process was, how important participation is. So does it move slower? It moves slower, but it moves better. If you try to end run that process, you just kill yourself because you didn't involve the major donors, you didn't involve the board. Bain does lots of projects without involving boards all the time. Of course, you've got a big company, you're in this division or down in the internet all the time. We can't do that. We're working in smaller organizations, which gets me to the other difference, or, or, and there are many, but another one, is the ability to implement of nonprofits is really different than the ability to implement of most businesses. Bain's average client probably has $2 billion in revenue, I'm guessing. It used to be that. It's probably more now. Uh, Bridgeman's average client probably has $4 million in revenue, or five. It's the difference between General Motors and a gas station. I mean, it's just really different. Our clients might have 35 people, 50 people. They don't, they don't sort of say, okay, I'm going to delegate that to the, you know, the CFO goes to the treasurer, goes to the controller, goes to this, goes to that. No, it's all the same person. <laughs> and so the ability of the organization to do things is different. It doesn't have the same infrastructure. So you have to be very sensitive to doing the sort of the, 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 the effort that gets 80% of the value as opposed to the, you know, the Herculean effort to get 100%, a little bit goes a long way. So those are some of the differences, which we're still, we're still learning. We're still learning. And I think we've been good at attracting people uh, who understand bridging is comp complicated. And we've been good at attracting clients who are um, willing to tolerate our, our insufficiencies, I guess is the way to say that. All right, a couple more questions, then we're going to be out of time. Yes, ma'am, please. From the standpoint of a seasoned entrepreneur looking to go from for-profit to non-profit, what would you say, or what have you seen are the biggest challenges? Okay, seasoned entrepreneur, for-profit to non-profit. Um, remember that as near as we can tell, jobs are not being filled, by and large, they're not being filled by search execs, most of the jobs and they're not being filled on job boards. They're being filled by, by who you know instead of who you are. Uh, who you know is really important. So for example, if you're interested in the environment, well, first of all, it's the strengths, passion. So what am I good at? What do I care about? The passions thing is really important to nonprofits, obviously, because if you, you know, you're not gonna be somebody who is neutral on the environment working in an environmental organization. It just won't play. <laughs> They won't like you, you won't like them, you'll wonder why they're so uh, obsessive about this stuff. Um, so figuring out those passions and then getting yourself in the flow of other people who share that passion so that they know you. It's, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. Because if you're not in the flow, if they don't know you, when the chief operating officer job at that local land trust opens up, They've never heard it. They're not going to call you. 
And most of those jobs, that's how they're filled. Or they'll send an email out to the board. Who do you know? I used the anecdote today. Um, they did that with a community foundation in Seattle. Uh, the CEO had left abruptly, and the, uh, one of the women on the board worked at Microsoft. You know, they said, gee, you could run this. Well, I'll step in for a year and do it. Got to leave Evanston to Microsoft. She's still running it. The guy's running Junior Achievement. We had a healthcare company. His buddy was on the board. They were looking for a new CEO. He said, Mac, you know, you'd be perfect at this. Perfect at this. He's been running it now for three or four years. You know, if, if, the peop, if the causes you're interested in, in certain geographies aren't, if you're not plugged into those, it's hard. It's hard. So thing one is, is get in the flow. Thing two. Um, the kinds of people that seem to be um, the most readily accepted on paper, you've got to look right on paper. If you don't look right on paper, you're never going to get to look right in person. The kinds of people that look right on paper are people that have functional skills the nonprofit wants. So in our own experience in Bridge Stars in Month 25, CFOs migrate pretty easily. Because if I'm running a nonprofit, I kind of have a business person with a CFO, I and mean, that makes sense to me. It's a money thing. Um, Human resource people, marketing communications, uh, chief operating officers, maybe. A little bit different, more complicated, because COO is dealing with all kinds of issues in a nonprofit. They may not be dealing with it in a for-profit. If, if you target those kinds of jobs and you can package yourself so you look like, you know, I have, I'm a COO. I'm, I have COO background. I'm applying to be a COO. That, that's kind of a square peg in a round hole. If you say, oh, I'm a general manager and I can do, you know, general management jobs, they won't know what that means, most nonprofits. So that's a hint, which is how you package yourself. The, the wrapping paper matters to get in the door. The box matters. Who you are matters once you're in the door. But, but packaging matters a lot in this stuff because perceptions matter. You know, uh, no nonprofit would hire a consultant, a business consultant to run to run their company or be a COO. They just wouldn't do it. They would say, what kind, what, why in the world would that happen? And yet almost all of BridgeSpan's alumni are now in nonprofits because they met people. And that's part of our theory of change, by the way. We want our alumni to be leaders in the nonprofit sector. All of them, all of them. Uh, the third, the third uh, thing is being really realistic about the time it takes because it's hard. Finding a senior job, a leadership job in the nonprofit sector is hard. Now, I think it'll be less hard years from now than it is today, but it's time intensive today. You have to pound the pavement, you have to meet the people, you have to hang out where they hang out. You, you have to therefore have some sense for what people you want to meet. So you have to know those strengths and passions thing because you can't meet everybody. And, and if you can meet those people, it still takes a long time and it's still a little bit random. So those are the, those are the, the, those are the advice. That, that's all kind of in a way of, might feel like bad news. The good news is the demand's enormous. The demand is enormous. We've placed, uh, I think we've had 40 or 45 Bridgestar in its startup phase searches where we were actually the lead search person. So these aren't uh, job posting. These are, they're paying us to do the search. It might be the $5,000 version, $20,000 version, they're paying us. Let's say it's 42. We've had two of those people only were, were uh, don't mistake this word, virgins. That is, they were coming from business having no nonprofit background at all, only two. Kind of surprising. Now, of the remaining 40, more than half started in business. So they started in business, got their first gig in the nonprofit sector, and then went on. Because all of a sudden, their resume said they were coming from the sector. They'd done this kind of work. They had a little bit of credibility. They had some references. 
Now, it's, it's the old chicken and egg, right? If I, if I have to have done it to do it, how do I do it to do it? You can't, so getting that first job, or if you, particularly if somebody wants to do a bunch of things, it's really, really important. And saying maybe it's not the perfect organization or the perfect thing, but boy, it is a COO position and, and I could do that. And I'm gonna give a shot at that. Um, of those 20 people, once they got in, they did really well. So I guess the last thing to say is most of the skills do transfer. Most of the skills are transfer. Culture's different. Fundraising, if you're in a job that requires fundraising, is really different. Business people sometimes have a hard time with begging. It's just one of those things, just not used to it. Um, so, you know, COOs are easier on that sometimes. Does that get at it? Okay. We are almost out of time. Oh yes, okay. This will be it then. Um, you, you talked a lot about how more nonprofits are developing metrics so they can measure their impacts. What what is Bridgespan doing to measure its impact on the nonprofit sector? Great question. So how does Bridgespan think about its impact? And we'll end on this. Um, our missions uh, create breakthrough results, and we are measuring that in a bunch of different ways. Uh, we can measure outputs and outcomes. An output is uh, having a professor at the Kennedy School of Government interview the client after the work and evaluate whether or not that client felt that we were worth it. So that's, most consulting firms, most professional service firms would say, check that box, looks like they did a good job. You know, and move on to the next job. For us, that's the beginning, it, it's not the end. Um, the end point is, okay, you've now worked with Harlem Children's Zone. Its goal was to move from serving 5,000 kids to 15,000. I'm gonna make this up because I don't remember the exact numbers, something like that. Uh, it's now three years later, <laughs> how are they doing? And by the way, uh, part of what we were trying to do with them was to create knowledge, because it has a multiplier. So have we created any knowledge that other organizations similar to Harlem Children's Zone might be able to learn from? You say, gee whiz, okay, in the case of Harlem Children's Zone, they're now gone from seven million to 18 million in revenue, really on the back of the business plan. They moved from three, 5,000 kids to 11. They aren't where they're going, but they're getting there. Uh, they, they've reorganized twice. They think the organization's a lot stronger. Uh, there's a, a case study that's been written about them. Um, Jeff Canada, the leader of the Harlem Children's Zone, is now, um, is now uh, a little bit famous because he was covered in the front page of the New York Times Sunday Magazine at, talking about the, the hood in Harlem and how he was running this massive nonprofit. So we say, and he would say, the jury's still out. We would say, so far it's been five years, they were our first client or second client, pretty good outcome. So our theory of change means that we have to have a client list that, you know, we've now served, we've now done 140 projects. Over the next five years, we'll do, say, another thousand, five, eight hundred. Um, you can go tick down the ones that have been, you know, five years or more out and say, how are they doing? Number two, is there knowledge out there that other people are using? Are they quoting it? Are other people, you know, using it to run their organizations? And then uh, three, are we doing anything that is linking capital and talent or capital and strategy in ways that weren't linked before? So working between, you know, the Gates Foundation and its portfolio, they're doing things they weren't previously doing. This isn't organization specific, it's more systemic. So that's our scorecard. Bridgecar's scorecard is gonna be number of people, number of jobs filled, 
And then ultimately, not only were they filled, but did the people work out? <laughs> so great, you've got a new COO, but five years later is the person succeeding in that. And I think later on, uh, one of Bridgestar's metrics is gonna be how many people, you know, maybe we didn't place the people, but nevertheless, they ended up in the nonprofit sector. They don't have to come through us. It's hire a friend deal. So if we can help people hire friends more effectively, hallelujah, that's great. It's those things. Everybody, thank you very much for taking a lot of your time. Appreciate your patience and good luck.